welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by University College London and the NIHR, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello and welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, bringing together early career researchers and leaders within the field to discuss their research, hot topics and to share career tips. I'm Adam Smith, I'm the Programme Director for Dementia Researcher and today I have the pleasure to be recording on location at Trinity College in Dublin. Um, Located in a beautiful campus in the heart of Dublin city centre, Trinity is Ireland's highest ranked university. It's home to 20,000 undergraduate and postgraduate students across all major disciplines. Trinity's tradition of independent intellectual inquiry has produced some of the world's finest, most original minds, including writers Oscar Wilde and Samuel Beckett and scientists William Rome Hamilton and Ernest Walton. It's also the home of the Global Brain Health Institute, or GBHI, which happens to be the topic for today's podcast. So let's meet our guests who are going to talk about that. It's my pleasure to welcome our three guests, the incredible Dr. Dominic Trapel. Hello. The amazing Dr. Claire Gillen. Hi. Did I say that right? Yes. And um, the fantastic Dr. Alejandro Lopez Valdez. Hi, everyone. Why don't you all introduce yourselves properly and what you do at GBHI and what your own field of research and expertise is. And I'm going to go to Dominic first. So, hi, uh, welcome to GBHI. My name's Dominic Trapel. I'm the faculty health economist here at GBHI. So, a lot of what I do with the program is getting people to think about what they're doing and has to represent value for money. So, um, we would encourage the fellows to learn about uh, what governments need to do to um, spend resources towards dementia. And that's that's important because that's not thought about as much as I think it, it should be. And that that by doing that at that stage, I'm guessing that this helps problems down the line with translation. One of the topics we've talked about on the podcast before and has come up in our blogs quite often, particularly from NIHR fellows, about from some of the frustrations of developing a great intervention and then that intervention just lives in the form of a nice publication and doesn't find its way into actual real life services and I'm guessing that's where health economics and value assessments can make a difference. Yeah so increasingly lots of research uh, funders require a health economist to be part of a funding application so that from the very inception of a project uh, value for money and cost effectiveness is being thought about so the likelihoods of translation have vastly improved if you're thinking about what do governments need to see to implement something in a real world setting. If you, if you, in the absence of that, if you, go, if you do that, you're very likely to have exactly what you say if something that just ends up on a shelf. William, then I'm definitely going to get you back to do an entire show just on that topic. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dominic. Claire, why don't you go first? Sure. So I'm an associate professor of psychology here at the Global Brain Health Institute. And so what my lab is interested in is using data science techniques and big data sets, citizen science, things like this, to push the needle forward for brain health. So we work a lot in the digital space to make sure that our data sets are big enough to produce impacts um, or, or insights, I suppose, that are reproducible and that we can try and roll out across large populations. 
So is this, uh, do, do you reuse other data sets as well, or are you, are you also creating your own great longitudinal cohort that... Um, yeah, so we're not focusing necessarily on um, longitudinal cohorts, but we generate an awful lot of data. So we have a smartphone app that has 20,000 citizen scientists. Oh, wow. It's called Nurika. And so they log on and donate their time to try and um, generate new insights that can help us learn about brain health. So that's across 120 different countries, um, people logging on and, and spending their time kind of sharing their, their life with us to help us learn. That's brilliant. We've had the game changer people on the podcast before as well, talking about that spatial navigation. Um, oh yeah, work. see Hero Quest. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much yeah. for joining us, Claire and Alejandro. Hi everyone. Thanks for the invitation to the podcast. Uh, I am an assistant professor in engineering, so I'm part of the School of Engineering, uh, particularly interested in neural engineering, specifically on translational aspects of neural engineering from the laboratory space to the real world. Uh, more in tune with neurotechnologies and how these neurotechnologies can support brain health throughout the lifespan and find more ecologically valid settings where we can start translating the findings that we have in laboratory environments to real world situations where we're engaging in social interactions and there is an effect of whom and where you are at that particular time. Brilliant. That's fascinating. And of course, so you all talked a little bit about your own field, but then you all have this other role, which is, of course, as faculty for GBHI, which is what we're going to talk about today. Thank you. So, Claire, if I could come to you with the first question for the podcast, why don't you give us an, an introduction to the Global Brain Health Institute, or GBHI? Okay, well, I'll do my best because it's a very uh, unique um, opportunity, I think, particularly in this space of, of brain health from someone with a research background. Um, it, it's a program, uh, sorry, it's a um, leadership training program for people across all kinds of different disciplines, from basic research to um, policy to economics that was mentioned earlier, all the way to the creative arts and journalism. The idea is we take people in who are really poised for leadership, we bring them in here to um, interact with one another, to expand their own knowledge, to think outside of their silos and come out of the program in a better place to enact the kind of change that we all want to make in our own siloed and, and perhaps uh, smaller ways. So it, it bring, gives people a much bigger vision um, to realize the big changes we want. And I guess, that, so that's an opportunity then to, to step away from whatever they're doing day to day to have that big picture view that we often know that we don't get. Absolutely. And it's what's nice about it is it's a 12 month residential program. So either based here at Trinity College Dublin or at the University of California, San Francisco. So people literally come in and have this wonderful new bunch of contemporaries with vastly different backgrounds and really can grow and bounce things off each other in a way that is very unique and that normally we don't have the opportunity to do. That's and, and I, I can test to the benefits of that as well, because that's what we do at Dementia Researcher as well, the idea of bringing basic scientists together with clinical researchers and qualitative and care researchers, because new things emerge from that, don't you? I, I guess I'm putting you on the spot here, but uh, <laughs> is, is this, I mean, did you mentioned your own work there. We, I, I mean, are you an alumni of the program yourself? No, I'm not, um, but I've worked with many fellows. I think one of the more interesting things that we're doing now that's very new for me as a basic scientist is thinking about applying sorts of data that we collect through our app for basic research 
in um, uh, lower income settings and the potential for these to be used as scalable diagnostic tools. So working with a fellow in Chile, for example, at translating our app to Spanish and rolling it out broadly in that context. Something I, as a faculty member, would have probably never arrived at on my own. Yeah, and, and I guess by bringing everybody with these various backgrounds together, you've got a great advisory group. You can just go and, uh, and ask yeah. somebody who's uh, from India, I guess, about the whether something would translate there or how that would work. That's brilliant. And so you mentioned Trinity College and UCSF, so that's in yeah. San Francisco. And um, can people apply to be in either place or do you, do you get placed? So you apply um, in general to the programme and you can of course indicate the kinds of people that you'd like to work with at the two sites and any preferences that you have. But ultimately what we're trying to strive for is a, a, a multi-site programme that's balanced in terms of the disciplines and the countries of the world that are represented. So there's a little bit of thinking about where might someone benefit from being the most depending on their particular background. Um, etc. So you apply generally to the program um, and then you, you are placed with some of your preferences in mind. And, and is it, I'm jumping ahead to a question I got for later on, but is it the same then? I mean, if you go and, and go to USCSF or you come to Trinity, I know that there's a taught element to this program as well, isn't it? Is it the same? The taught element is shared across the sites and aligned as much as possible, but the experience is very different because the experience is definitely depending on the site. That you, that you are, the clinical rotations that you get involved with uh, differ vastly from the UC, UC, UCSF cohort to the Trinity cohort, and the expertise of the faculty as well as are different. So those interactions make the, the program unique at both sites. So it's always good to have a look at the faculties in different sites and be able to pinpoint what you'd like to do, what aligns more with your future plans and, and your ambitions, because you could definitely find some key differences between the two sites. And if you want good Guinness, you come to Trinity. And if you want kombucha, you go to San Francisco. I think it's also fair to say that every year when we put together a, fellow, uh, a cohort, we try to make one cohort. There isn't two cohorts at each site. So we have a lot of touch points throughout the year where we bring people together. They have a leadership uh, development week that they spend together. They often also go to the AAIC conferences together. So they have opportunities to break down that siloing so that amongst themselves, each year, every cohort is very tight and very, you know, knows each other very well, even if they are at opposite sites. That, that's, I mean, brilliant that you make the, I imagine that's quite challenging to, to make people feel the same cohort when they're at opposite sides of the world. But I, I know from having interacted with some of your fellows at the conferences you mentioned, that they, they, they do come across together as a single group so well done on that so you, you touched on before what makes the program unique in terms of bringing together you you talked about artists and basic scientists and clinical people what what else is there anything else you'd say that makes this program unique alejandro what it yeah, i mean they, they i think the diversity of the program itself is very unique but also the fact that they're not coming here to stay, but they're coming here to train and then go back to their regions and make an impact there. I think that is one of the key flagships of the program is we're seeding and training around 600 leaders in brain health that can have an impact back home. And that could be in a myriad of areas, could be the clinical, could be practice, could be policy, could be awareness, advocacy. So that really brings a program to the forefront of how we approach brain health issues at the moment and allows us to topicalize 
the, the broadness of brain health to each particular region. Uh, this translatability from concepts to practice within specific cultures, I think is key for, for creating good impact worldwide. Can we just pick up on that, that brain health there for a second? Because, I, I mean, when we... Obviously, this is the Dementia Researcher podcast, and we mostly have people who work in Alzheimer's or neurodegenerative diseases more generally. But when you talk about brain health here, could this is this lifespan brain health? Is this people who who might work with people with Alzheimer's, but they might also be working in, say, mental health so challenges I, or younger people? Or I think as, as a program, we have a, a strong emphasis on, on dementia, but I think that's within the context of brain health. So there's this growing hypothesis, particularly given our reflections on many years of failed trials to find a curative treatment for dementia, that you have to do things earlier in the life course. So I think with GBHI's mission in Brain Health, we are considering anything. So we are going from childhood. We have a, a child brain health group where we're thinking, do things like education have an impact on later life outcomes? And also a lot of the literature recently has focused on midlife modifiable risk factors. So there's a great emphasis on that. And also when we start to throw those paradigms in, we're thinking much more in terms of public health than just clinical post-diagnostic you know, where are the opportunities most likely to be uh, best? So one of the programs of research I'm doing is on the economics of brain health. And that's really trying to say, well, where should we invest our money throughout any life course? You know, possibly that, you know, next drug treatment could provide the best benefit and best return on investment. But maybe there's things that we do early on in life that could equally be a good investment. So this, this could be the next stage performance that gets people breaking down the stigma and talking about early and midlife risk factors and sort of, you know, seeing similar paradigms to what we've seen with heart disease, where people are now proactively going to get them checked. We don't do that with our brains. So I think that's the future. That's great. So that, actually, that really clears this up for me. So you, it, this isn't about being a dementia researcher already or working in dementia. If you're a occupational therapist that works with professional sports people, for example, or in coaching or something like that, where we know there's lots to talk about the impact of concussion and things. So this program would also be for you as well. It's, it's about that. Or if you're a dietitian, for example, looking at, at what we eat or, or plant-based diets and the benefits and things, those. Brilliant. That, that really clears that up for me. So lots of your fellows, I imagine, are whatever field they work in, they'll be quite passionate about what they do and they're clearly, to apply for this, they want to improve themselves, society and work. So generally speaking, what more do you think these uh, we, we can do to influence policy? You, you touched on there about, because I mean, obviously there's lots we can do as individuals, but we know whether that's government policy or the society we live in, this has to all contribute to brain health. What, what more yeah. do you... So, so imagine that you're a fellow who's come to our program from a, a low income, a lower resource setting, right? You might be the only psychiatrist, neurologist or geriatrician in that context. The likelihood is that you do have to do a lot of clinical work, but you will also be that person that the government might also turn to and say, what do we need to do about this agenda? So when fellows come to our program, whether they're clinical or from other backgrounds, they have to learn uh, health economics, for example, is, is the program that I teach them. So all our fellows will learn health economics and how to make economic arguments for developing services that are sustainable and can be implemented in a real world setting. Um, 
What the fellows will then do is that they've just done the practical exercise there. We encourage them to, to also imagine that they are speaking to a national decision maker and presenting that argument. So they're also learning skills of how to uh, lobby and you know, maybe argue against other agendas because you know, dementia isn't the only agenda that, that uh, a healthcare decision maker will be thinking about. They, they will think about cancer, some countries it's malaria and nutrition if it's lower resource settings and trying to understand what the trade-off is of investing there. So the fellows do that, they think about doing that in a practical sense, in a, in a safe confines of our, where we teach, and we encourage them to do that. So we've seen lots of our fellows go out and speak to, at, to the WHO. So we have fellows who are advising there to the OECD. So we have people that are uh, advising in kind of sandbox arenas there. And also uh, all, all the European Parliament, for example, we've had fellows be invited to speak there. And then most of our fellows come away with a much bigger position towards speaking at a national context in their country. They're, they should be recognised far more as a local expert. And given that confidence as well, that they can feel they can speak with authority. And if they've come from whatever field they've come from, I guess, making a case for why that, whether that's music in research or arts right. or things like that are, are important. So we've talked a little bit about leadership. So practically, take me through. Somebody comes here. So it's, it's nice and summer. They've just traveled all the way from, from Brazil. They arrive in Dublin, realize the first thing they need to buy is an umbrella. Uh, and having bought their umbrella and an overcoat, what are they going to do every day? How are they going to spend that year on campus? Or are they on campus? What, what do they do through the course of the year? They are here on campus. They're actually literally just a few doors down here working away. So in this room. In <laughs> but the course is, is divided into modules. So there is, of course, leadership modules where they, they, they train in leadership. They come together as a group. They meet everybody for the first time and everything. And then they split up again into, into pods, uh, learning skills for proposal grants uh, writing, for example. Uh, making sure that they'll be able to source funding for their, their future endeavors. Uh, they also have modules, taught modules about the uh, psychosocial and physiopathology of, of uh, dementias, um, brain health, health economics, and uh, other skills like presentation skills, for example. So they, they have all these training modules throughout the year. And on parallel to that, they're preparing a grant proposal that they will be submitting uh, for the Alzheimer's Association pilot program uh, towards the summer. And we mentor them throughout that process. They, they have their own original idea of the project that they would like to start as a pilot. And we make sure that that is in line with where they headache in, in their career-wise so that they can use this as a platform and trampoline to, to keep having an impact. Great. So, so this is, I mean, a very practical introduction to many things. So if you arrive here and you're an artist that doesn't kind of really know anything about the neuroscience part, you're going to have a module which yes. is on neuroscience. Correct. That, that's going to be pitched at your level, though, that you can understand. Yeah. If you're a clinical person, you arrive, um, do you also kind of go off and get some talk about the psychosocial interventions? It's the same for everybody. They're together all the time. So they're, they're having the same courses. And this enables them to have discussions from the very expert voices to the to to the fresh set of eyes in the groups so it's really interesting to see how they interact and how do they assimilate the, the material and the discussions that they have afterwards as well because they they have everything 
is facilitated by faculty from GBHI, and then they go back to their, their fellow room and they have the discussions on their own. So it, it's really interesting to see those interactions, particularly for people who come from non-clinical non backgrounds, discussing all the clinical aspects. There's, there's uh, uh, case studies, there, there are round tables, there, there are clinical lived experience. All of that information gets cemented throughout um, their, their peers as well. I love that. I imagine that really pushes some people, not just that pushes everybody out of their comfort zone so you're not going to turn up here as a clinician and feel uber confident that you know everything because the chances are you only know your bit and there'll be some part of the course that's not really something that you'd thought of as part of your clinical training i caught up with some fellows and alumni from the institute to get their perspectives on different aspects of the program I am Agustin Ibanez, Senior Atlantic Fellow uh, from the cohort 2018-19 so you love Dublin so much that you just decided to stay? Uh, well, absolutely. So Dublin, uh, first of all, is, is one of the sites for the GBHI. It's a wonderful city, but it's a huge opportunity to support Latin American networking, research, uh, and awareness that is uh, the, the most part of the work that I love it. So where does your work, where does your original work um, was from Latin America? Yes, yes, I am a, I am from Argentina, and I have been doing research in dementia for almost fifteen years across different Latin American countries, including Argentina, Chile, um, Colombia, Peru, Brazil, Mexico, and. Before the GBHI, I was trying to create, in fact, a, a consortium, a Latin American consortium, because in that region, the people work in isolation, they don't have funds, they don't have training, uh, they don't know how to share data. And, you know, this is the region with the largest inequality in the world. And the, the inequalities have a huge impact in dementia. So I, I come to the GBHI with a big, big dream, but never imagined that we were able to to do after that. So what makes a, an a researcher with an established career already within their field leave that to go and be a GBHI fellow? What did you, what did you, why did you leave and what did you think you'd gain from that? Yeah, so first of all, I have a kind of internal crisis. I was just a typical researcher doing papers, 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 you know, data analysis, students and that's it. And then I realized that this doesn't have a direct impact or immediate impact in the, in the people. But at the same time, when I started to do multicentric studies, I realized that different centers across Latin America have the same problem. So I changed the view. I started to think about in the long-term impact of the research, how we can create capacity building, how we can empower in other people, how we can make emerging leaders, you know, creating the space for them. So that was the big change. The GBHI really provides a global view that respects uh, the regional challenges and barriers and, and a specific aspects. So we were able to surpass the barriers that we faced in the region. So how have you been able to put what you learned from the fellowship into use you know, a few years on now? How have you put that to, into practice? Well, I think that I... I was very, very lucky. We were able to do a lot of things. So first of all, we created the Latin American and Caribbean Consortium of Dementia that have almost 300 experts in the region, including uh, national prices, ministries of health, 
and it's a huge um, task for driving the main uh, needs for the major research and care in Latin America. Then we created the Latin American and Caribbean Consortium on Dementia, or REDLAT, that is a research-oriented consortium. We already have raised more than $24 million in research, empowering the region, doing genetics, doing social determinant of health, socioeconomic factors, multimodal neuroimaging, computational approaches. And then the last step was the Latin American Brain Health Institute that is founded by the Universidad Adolfo Ibáñez and is affiliated to the EBHI, that is the only regional center supporting all our network in Latin America and promoting the brain health. So these three, uh, LACCD, RedLAT, and BrainLAT, are a direct consequence of the work that we started to do in the GBHI during my fellowship. So through those collaborations and that inspiration, it's made you uh, create these fantastic opportunities. I'm Jayshri Dasgupta, and I'm a clinical psychologist with a specialization in neuropsychology. And I'm also a social entrepreneur who's based in India. So I have an organization called Samvedna Care, which um, provides services for mental health, active aging and dementia care in India. And is that cross India or is it in a rural or urban or...? So, so we are actually based in Gurgaon, which is an urban part of um, India near the capital Delhi. And um, we, we, we're, we were initially, prior to the pandemic, a centre-based model. Um, and then with all these lockdowns, we were really pushed to think about how we could start supporting people online, because that was the only way to kind of reach people. So with that, we've had to kind of repurpose a lot of the services that we had. And we've, we're now, I'm, I'm very happy to say, kind of reaching out to different places in different states across India um, to provide online mental health support and services for people as well. We often think about dementia in the context of what's happening in our own countries, obviously what we know. What impressions do you get for how dementia is uh, perceived in, in India uh, and then how that compares elsewhere in the world? Right, that, I mean that's really important and a huge part of the work that we do because um, a lot of people don't really know what dementia is so you can't, um, and we're, we provide services for dementia, so the first thing that we really have to do is create more awareness about what is dementia? How is this different from natural aging? Because there's a lot of cultural perceptions around um, aging, what, you know, the kind of decline is often seen as just a natural part of aging, really. And so it was really important for us to create more awareness, help people understand what are those initial signs and symptoms that they should kind of watch out for. Um, and also help people realize that it's, you know, it's not stigmatizing to reach out to a mental health professional or any professional, really, if you have a doubt about the kind of issues that your, you know, loved one may be facing. Um, so I think these are the two kind of things that we have to really um, kind of work on, uh, in addition to talking about the kind of services, the kind of support that people living with dementia and their families can get. And I'm assuming, I mean, I imagine India is no different to other, you know, to the UK or into the US in so much as there's no one prevalent view of this, that it depends where in the country you are as to uh, different attitudes towards this. Right. Is that how you, is that the same in India as well? Are there parts of the country that where, yes, there is more stigma than, or is it more accepted still that there are things that can be done and the brain health is an issue elsewhere? 
I mean, I have to say, I think I think overall public awareness about it is low, but I've seen it change in, over the over the years. Um, I think majority of India, it's people still don't know what is brain health. It's not a term that that's a term that actually we're using a lot more here at GBHI. But I think what people in India are still using is is mental health, um, and that's more restrictive. And it is it is the term itself is in a way stigmatizing. Um, so. Overall, I think public awareness is low across India, but definitely, um, at, at least amongst more educated urban regions, people are beginning to talk about it. So hopefully that's the way in which the message will start to spread across India, as well as probably more other low and middle income countries. So how has this program helped you personally for when you, when you return to India to pick up where you left off before? Yeah, so the, I, I think programs been absolutely fantastic, and and for me, what's been really interesting is just getting to talk about the work um, that I've been doing back in India, um, sharing experiences of things that um, that work, that don't work, and getting ideas uh, from other people who've been working in not only in the space of dementia and mental health care, but just basically very diverse areas. Um, so it's it's been really useful in terms of broadening the way to approach problems. Um, and that's been really great. And I think that's going to be very helpful when I go back in terms of at least trying to spread this message around, you know, how to focus on your brain health um, and how to, uh, you know, look out for signs, how to, you know, seek help and support from, you know, people around you, from systems and structures, and hopefully to get some advocacy going to, uh, you know, push for um, brain health across the country. So I think that's 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 the kind of things that I think this program is really going to help you with. I'm Zach Bandler. Um, I'm from the United States. Uh, I'm a 2022-23 uh, Atlantic Fellow for Equity and Brain Health here at GBHI Trinity College Dublin. And um, what did you do before you became a fellow? Because we've, we've heard throughout yes. this podcast how people have very varied backgrounds. What yeah. did you do before you became a fellow? I, I, so I've had a few careers, but I'm a film director and a screenwriter. Um, I do narrative film, so as opposed to documentary, I do all mostly fictional material. And then I was an actor for a long time before that as well. Brilliant. Yeah. I, you, you know, everybody asks you, have you been in anything I would see? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that depends. I, yes, I was in... Um, show called The Good Wife, uh, a show called How I Met Your Mother, um, and most people know me for a show called Switched at Birth, which was on ABC Family. Okay, and I've definitely seen How I Met Your Mother, and they've just redone that, for How I Met Your Father. <laughs> yeah, that's right, they did. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so how long have you been into your fellowship? So we're about uh, coming on six months into the fellowship. What have you covered so far in the first six months? Yeah, so we, it's, they really, um, they definitely throw a lot at you at the very beginning in terms of um, kind of the coursework and trying to get everybody on, you know, just on the same page. So for those of us who are, don't come from a scientific or clinical background, it's been a lot of just introduction to neurology and brain health and various types of dementias and biomarkers and things like that. So, um, that's kind of been going on in tandem with other skills they want people to develop in terms of leadership, in terms of how to make presentations or how to start writing grants. So it's, it's very comprehensive. Um, I will say, truth be told, the, the most riveting part of it has actually been the collaboration between the fellows themselves. Because we come from, we're a very diverse cohort in terms of of, of careers and where we're all coming from. And so a lot of collaborations have started to coalesce between everybody. And that has been very exciting. 
Um, and I have a feeling it's probably what the mission, you know, is, it has been all along. It's one of the aims, yeah. isn't it? So from the things you've covered so far, is there anything being particularly surprised you? What What is a kind of key takeaway mm. that you've learned that you went, oh, I didn't, I had no idea that surprised me. Well, so I think a couple of things, it's interesting, I came to this with, um, as a filmmaker, I'm, I'm really passionate about, um, you know, I come from Hollywood and literally, and there's so many dimensions viewed is as, as a tragedy narrative in basically everything, right? You know, you see these characters in various films and it's like they're kind of in a living death, right? And so something I'm really, something that's really important to me as a filmmaker is to start to change that narrative so that we can actually look at more hopeful stories about dementia, about brain health in general, but specifically dementia and brain injury. Um, so for me, I think a lot of it has been mining the information out of some of these faculty who come from really distinguished backgrounds and deep levels of expertise in totally different fields that I can use to start to craft more hopeful narratives with, you know, hard, hard data to back it up. Um, now, is that, you know, the most, <laughs> that's not the, that's not like the sexiest Hollywood way to spend something, but I think for me, accuracy is really, really important. Um, on the flip side, I have felt very much that, you know, I think sometimes the artists who might come into a program like this are a bit uh, feeling like a fish out of water because everybody around us has a PhD and I just have a bachelor's degree from university. Um, but what I have found is that I think there's a real need for better communication skills in the sciences and in research. Um, and that's something that I can, that I do every day of my life, you okay. know? And so you, to be able to work, I just, I just did a pitching, like I just did a seminar on pitching, which I do frequently. I've pitched at HBO and Lionsgate and Sony and, you know, I, I make TV and movies. Um, and it was really exciting to watch, you know, fellow fellows really respond to like, oh my gosh, these are skills that we desperately want and need. And I was like, well, I have these skills, so let's work together. And having sat through lots of neurology conferences, <laughs> I can honestly say some of those skills would be invaluable to some of those yeah. neurologists. Yeah, well, I'm a storyteller. So, you know, my whole thing is like how to build and craft story. And so that's that's great. That, and that helps you really come over, get over that initial imposter syndrome of, oh, gosh, I shouldn't be here. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've been, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm entrenched enough in my career, um, uh, certainly as a writer and as a director for the past five, six years, that I feel pretty confident with what I'm bringing to the table that it matters. But you're right. I mean, there's definitely, you know, there have been courses, seminars that I've sat through. I'm like, I have no idea what we're talking about. But someone I can pull aside afterward, you know, and say, so can you just translate this a bit more for me? And somebody can and it's great. and I can't help but feel that you've got to if even if the in addition to filmmaking of course you're going to become the Hollywood expert on making <laughs> films more accurate yeah. well in properly representing adventures. Uh, yeah. so inevitably when so obviously we heard the awful news that Chris Hemsworth yes found out he was an yes. Apple E4 yes. carrier yeah um you can't help but feel that there's there's something going to come out of that later down the line 
some documentary you, you could potentially so yeah i mean you know i think there are little pops of that starting to kind of get through to the mainstream um i don't know if any of your listeners have seen robin's wish uh which is about ron williams having blue body dementia we viewed it here as a cohort um and that was a big deal but nobody knew what Louis Body's dementia was before that, mm. you know? Um, I think for me, I see that there's a lot of potential to bridge GBHI in Hollywood. And I, I'm, I'm really, uh, that's kind of become my mission in a way. I think you'll be a great uh, middleman. Thank you very much for yeah, joining Yeah, thank you. Jane. Thanks for having me. I've been listening to a few clips from some of the fellows as well to talk about their perspectives. But we'll move on now. And I'm going to come to Claire to ask... Uh, we've already touched a little bit on kind of... I do have one question about what kind of people apply. We've clearly made out everybody applies who might be a future leader in brain health. Is that age-specific? I mean, you know, do you... Is this... Do you have to have already achieved some career stage that makes you eligible? No, there's no hard and fast rules. A general guiding principle that we have is what we want to do is, we use the phrase, bend the arc for people. So we want to achieve the maximum amount of impact for, for the world from the money that we invest in supporting and the training we provide to individual fellows. So we think about people where, as great candidates, if they could come here and they leave this program, um, propelled towards the next thing, if we can triple or quadruple the impact that that person might have. So it's really about thinking about the individual person, do they come in with this um, zeal, with the values that we espouse as part of GBHI, and this you know interest in changing the world. And if they do, and we think we can have a big impact, that's a perfect candidate for us. Great, so no age specific, and it's obviously anywhere in the world as, as well as we touched on. And what makes what makes for a good application? Um, passion, I think, is a big part of it. We want people to um, typically, not always, have demonstrated some sort of track record in terms of their interest and engagement with the brain health problem, as we've discussed earlier, broadly defined throughout the lifespan. So people who are really engaged with this problem and can show they have some commitment to it, but have much more to grow. Um, so that's a really good application, hearing the you know, enthusiasm, the ideas, and I would say particularly for me, the ambition in, in, in the ideas. We want people who want to change the world and want to be an agent for that change. And those are the applications I think that really shine. I'd just add as well, I think because um, the programme has the uh, Atlantic Fellows for Equity and Brain Health. So the word equity is important there. So when we're looking at applicants, we also want to uh, want to see applications from people who recognise the inequalities that people with dementia or brain health problems may face. So they might be trying to uh, target an underserved community in whichever way they perceive that. So that for our values and our mission is super important that, that, that people are... For example, if they're coming from a lower resource setting, they may be setting up the first service. But if they're applying from a higher resource setting, you know, what are they doing to address some inequities in their world? Are they going to do something locally that speaks to that? Or are they going to work at a global level and try to, you know, share, for example, good research in the UK to benefit other countries? You know, so that some of what may be learned elsewhere can be of benefit to, to places where there is, you know, a gap still. And... And having read, prepared for this discussion today and having read the biographies, which are all on the website, if anybody's interested to see if you can find somebody like you, if you, you know, all the cohort of fellows from previous years are all on the website and you can read about their work and what inspired them, I definitely suggest you go look at that, is 
is you don't have to kind of be looking at a big group of people either. You can be very interested in a very small niche group of people that are particularly affected and, and the programme would still support you in that work. So, so I, I think I just want to bring in, we, we've been running for, we're now into our seventh cohort. So we have 200 people who are in the field and, and the programme was partly modelled on the road Scholarship, which is a lifelong fellowship. We're trying to make sure that people... Yeah, they might take a small group, but they, if they are taking a small group, they're committed to them for the long term and they're trying to drive forward an agenda with their, hopefully they're trying to make as much impact as they can. So, you know, the impact goals are going to be increasingly important to the program over time. So to try and make sure that people, once they spend that one year with us, they go on, they have a solid five year program of at least of what they're going to try to do. Beyond this. Ah, well, that's a good question. And so what's the legacy after this? I mean, I did have a question here about what, how people put what you know can you give me some examples of what people have done after the program but when you leave the program then you don't just say goodbye and they vanish you you there's a, a legacy to this mm -hmm. so we uh, so the program runs like a, an alumni uh, program so there are pots of money for example that fellows will apply for to keep their networks going and to get initiatives going so we've seen various initiatives put, uh, building up around the world. I suppose one of our most successful ones was in Central and South America, where we had our initial strategic focus. And we've now seen a galvanization of countries across the region who are all kind of working towards this agenda. So that, that's you know, many years later. And we're, we're now shifting towards having strategic focuses in Africa and in Asia. So we hopefully see similar programs like that. So you might have people who are working very locally at grassroots level, but you might hopefully also have a leader that's trying to bring the whole uh, movement forward. And you have that big picture view, because we know that the dementia prevalence rates, obviously not, it's not just been about dementia, but we know that they're mostly going to grow in sub-Saharan Africa. That's, that's where they're pitched to grow. So you can look in advance of that and say, well, that's actually an area where, where you particularly want to encourage people to imply. I'm assuming you don't fav give favoritism to applicants from certain places you're strategically looking at. Oh, but you might encourage more people from those places to apply? Yeah, I think there's definitely targeted recruitment efforts. And, you know, like Dominic was saying, I think a, a big, we know that people can do more together and that creating these local networks is really important for just synergizing and, again, achieving the biggest change possible. So we will focus sometimes the recruitment efforts in regions, but we take candidates from, from all over the world. So even if you're in a wealthy kind of, country like the US or, or somewhere in Europe or the UK. I was going to say the UK. The UK is wealthy, right? <laughs> we are still wealthy. Um, that you, you, that wouldn't put you in a, in a worse position. No, there's, there's usually um, several fellows um, from, the, from the combination of the US, the UK, Ireland. Um, it, it is part of the diversity of the cohorts as well, so that they could actually bring the different perspectives together and, and, and uh, enrich in everybody's experience. I think the lifelong approach is very interesting. It's because, as you say, they don't just finish and say goodbye. Uh, GBHI provides a platform for connection, for them to find common grounds and continue to work together, not only in the region, but also across the, the different regions and, and throughout the world. So there are uh, common learning groups or study groups that still get together, interest groups they're called, sorry, where they still get together and discuss common interests, particularly from, from uh, how to um, translate uh, questionnaires into different regions, into different countries, share some of those experiences. And I think that is something that brings or makes this fellowship really, really interesting. 
uh, that we provide that support as well. We don't just, we don't just disengage from, from alumni. We try to reel them in as much as possible, try to keep in touch as much as possible. And we also have a growing numbers of regional mentors that help us support the fellows as they go back to the region and now also have a way to connect with other regional mentors from the world. So we really trying to expand and share the impact that we can have throughout. So, so one of the things that Alejandro touched on is that every single fellow at Plyser program will develop a pilot application. So this, uh, this is, uh, they will be applying for around 25,000 to take home to their home region and get that first step post program as an ongoing initiative. So when you're thinking about a regional mentor, that's something that will be shared with a mentor in GBHI, that regional mentor and the fellow driving that process forward. So that very first step is just, you know, seeding what the next five, 10, 15 years of their ambitions might be. Fantastic. So for anybody who's listening, who's thinking to applying, uh, is there going to be another round of opening soon? Yeah, so I think next spring we're looking to open the application cycle. So I'd encourage people who are interested to go check out the website. So this is spring 2023? Yes. Okay, so sometime soon. By the, I think if you're listening to this and it's, I'm not quite sure when this show is going to come out, but if it's March or April, um, it'll be opening soon. Yes, absolutely. And we do an annual call for new applications. So if this year doesn't quite fit, you can know that reliably every year we'll be um, applying and taking a new cohort of fellows. And, and uh, if you're successful, I'm assuming the course is funded. You don't have to pay. Do you, is there a stipend? Do, do so, uh, practically. I know people will be asking that question. <laughs> yeah, you, you pay us 50 grand and we take you on the course. No, yeah, I, I won't be able to speak to the specific number, but uh, every uh, applicant, uh, we, we went through a very rigorous process of making sure that, you know, what they're offered at the sites is benchmarked. So it, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a fully funded program that, you know, if you're in UCSF or if you're in Dublin here in Trinity College, um, you've got, you know, uh, essentially a similar level to what someone would be employed at okay. as, a, as a research fellow. Brilliant. I, I mean, genuinely, I can't think why anybody wouldn't apply for this, right? I mean, so this is a fantastic opportunity. I think if you're listening to this and you're an early career researcher or you're in a postdoc right now, we've done shows in the past where uh, frustrated postdocs that are kind of getting a little bit annoyed that they've got stuck in this cycle of one position after another... But uh, uh, make you know doing great work. That this is a fantastic opportunity to to take a year out, gain some new skills, get a perspective on different things, living in another country as well, work with an awesome group of people who you can collaborate with, write a grant application through the year, and get paid to do it. So this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. But if you just can't get enough of this topic, um, you'll find more information in the show notes with the podcast or, of course, on the Dementia Researcher website, where we'll also have a full transcript and we'll include any uh, links that we are talked about today that would help you uh, potentially apply. Uh, we'll also have biographies on all of our guests uh, from today. So I'd just like to thank the incredible Dr. Dominic Trapel. Uh, the brilliant Dr. Claire Gillen, and of course, the wonderful Dr. Alejandro Lopez Valdez. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Adam Smith, and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher Podcast. Brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society 
Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support. 